Thanks so much, Mark. Man, love those songs. Every time I sing Nothing But the Blood, I think about when my mother was in her late 80s, she had atrial stenosis, and she needed to to have something done about it, and so she qualified to have a new valve, a pig valve, put in. And so she went into the hospital. So I visited her before surgery, and her extremities were purple and blue. On her legs, her arms, her hands, there was no circulation getting there. And then she got the pig, pig valve. I used to kid her that, you know, after the surgery, all of a sudden you like bacon a lot. But anyway, uh, she got the pig valve put in, and literally less than two hours post-op, color was returning to her extremities. And they eventually normalized. And I learned, she's a retired RN, I learned that the capillaries and the, and the vessels, even if they haven't been used because of blood flow, they, re, they have the ability to regenerate and heal again and be used again. And it's all because of the power of the blood. And of course, I'm making the spiritual connection and, and thinking of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the word cleanse, from the word cathartic, uh, has that aspect of it. Healing, rest- restoration, strength, and of course, forgiveness and redemption, which we, we know more familiar to, in a more familiar way that way. Anyway... Thanks for sharing that song and and leading us in it, Mark. Appreciate that. Okay, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to continue on. I asked Pastor John uh, what he preferred. He said, well, if you want to do that, if you want to just continue on in the book of Acts or you want to start a different book, so let's just keep going. Let's keep going in the book of Acts. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 in our time together. So Lord, we pray your blessing upon your word. And we know you'll bless your word because it's, it's the word of God that works effectively in those who believe. Uh, but now we ask, Lord, that you'd prepare our hearts, that we would receive with meekness this implanted word, which you say is able to deliver our souls. So thank you for it, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to reread what Pastor John taught on last week, make some comments, and then dive into this morning's passage. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, 
whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So this chapter records for us the initial organizing of the apostolic first century church. We think about the church being organized today, and what does that look like? And working with churches as I do, I see that some churches are trying to organize themselves according to some sort of a corporate business model. Other churches are completely non-organizational. There's no organization at all. That's the other extreme. And then there's the biblical model. Now, the first church, the apostolic church, organized themselves out of necessity, not for the purpose of being organized. Organization in and of itself was no great treasure for them. They organized as was necessary, and this was a situation in the early part of chapter 6 that created a necessity for some level of organization, and so they tended to that. Robert Coleman in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, which is all about discipleship and how Jesus trained the twelve and transferable concepts to those of us that are going to be making disciples ourselves. In his book, he has a a phrase that he likes to use, form follows function. And I love that, I love that phrase because, uh, you create the form after you see the function at play. You watch what God is doing, and then if organization is required because of something that God is doing, you keep it simple, you keep it focused, you keep it on task, and form follows function. It doesn't precede function. And this is the mistake I think sometimes churches can make, is they take the view that function uh, actually uh, follows form. And that's, uh, or the other way around. You know what I'm trying to say. The opposite of the first thing I said. So what happened here was that there was a complaint that had arisen. A complaint. It was obviously loud enough to where the apostles became aware of it. It became circulated through the congregation of the first century church. And it was something that became an issue. Uh, The church wasn't a perfect church, the apostolic first century church, because complaining was in it. And I think of Philippians 2.14, it says, Do all things without complaining or murmuring. And of course, this is a commandment that Jesus gives to us through uh, the book of Philippians. But uh, nonetheless, complaining happens. That's because human beings are, are the ones doing the complaining. And the church wasn't a perfect church in the first century because... You guessed it. It had people in it. That's why it wasn't a perfect church. And there is no perfect church. And as you saw last week, the complaint had to do with the Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jewish widows. They were neglected in the daily distribution of food. The complaint wasn't disputed at all. It was stated, as a matter of fact, this indeed was happening. The Hellenistic Jewish widows were being neglected in the distribution of the food. So that was an undeniable fact. So the apostles 
they heard all of this and they saw what was going on and they were leaders, obviously. So they had the responsibility to see to it that the situation was addressed and fixed. So that was the genesis of what happened here in their decision. Now, in dealing with the complaint, I imagine that the apostles were forced to review things within themselves. They had walked with the Lord for three years, three plus years. He had trained them personally on what it meant to lead, what it meant to minister to people, how he did it. He was the model and example, and he gave them the power to do the same. And so they had to review these things in their mind. Okay, so what is it that we're supposed to be doing here? What is our task? What is our calling? And I believe that they probably very naturally reviewed, when this need was presented to them, their own mission, their own calling, and their own priorities. All of these things had to be reviewed in their own minds. Now, I think we're going to see, as we talk about this a little bit and unpack it, that this has to do not just with apostles in the first century church. That has to do with me as a pastor teacher. This has to do with you and whatever role you might have in the church. Or if you don't have a role yet in the body of Christ, you should get one because it's an important thing to serve uh, the Lord's people. But we also, all of us, have to, have to look through these matters. We have to think about what, what's the mission and what is the calling and what are our priorities. Now, the apostles' mission was to make disciples. That was clear. In fact, we call it the great commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. The great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. That was the great commission. This was in their minds. This was in their hearts. They knew that this is what they were supposed to do. This was their mission. And so their role was to develop new converts into close followers of Jesus, just as Jesus had developed them into close followers of Jesus. Meaning they would be ones that would deny themselves, say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. That was the whole thing that the apostles knew that they were supposed to do. That was their mission, to win people to Christ and then to make disciples as close followers of Jesus into Christ. It's pretty simple, but it's amazing how easily the church can neglect this very, very important mission. Now, the calling of the apostles was as apostles. They were apostles who, along with the prophets along with the evangelists, and along with the pastor-teachers, were called by God to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's right out of Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, where Paul the Apostle writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, God gave some apostles, some evangelists, some prophets, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So what was the apostolic calling? It was to equip believers for the service that they were to do, that Jesus had called them to to do in the body of Christ and in the world. To equip them. 
What's the role of the prophet? Well, no matter what a prophet does, that's the aim of it, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building of the body of Christ. The evangelist, the same thing. The evangelist wins the lost, but there's another aspect of the evangelist. The evangelist trains and equips the believers for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Evangelists beget evangelists. That's how their role happens. And then the role of the pastor-teacher, the same thing. The pastor-teacher, one office, described by two words. Pastor comes first, teacher comes second. The pastor-teacher is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the pastor-teacher's role. And therefore, their calling. Now the priority, then, of the apostles in this situation in Acts 6 was to say yes to their mission and to their calling first and foremost. And then to say no to anything that was outside of that mission and calling. And that's the hard part. Because there are a lot of things that the apostle could do. There are a lot of things that the prophet, the evangelist, and the pastor-teacher can do. And they're good things. But good isn't always best, and good isn't always great. It's important for those who are in the equipping offices within the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's important that they stick to the mission, remain faithful to their calling, and maintain proper priorities. Saying no, and this is, I think, true generally as people get older chronologically, but it's also true as we're developing ministry. Saying no to the things that are less than great or more unimportant for what I've been called to do is an important thing to do. Otherwise, I won't give proper attention to what the main thing is that I am called to do. And I am to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building of the body of Christ as a pastor teacher, as are the other offices. And the whole body of Christ participates in this as this is happening from these individuals, these people mentioned in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. This process continues on into the, the whole body of believers because now they're equipped for ministry. Now they're equipped in their role and in their calling and in their mission and their way of helping uh, further the Great Commission. And as that happens, then they too will have the job of staying faithful to the mission, making sure that they're obedient to their calling, and also maintaining proper priorities. So what did that look like for the disciples, these apostles? Well, they had to do this. And the need had to be addressed. The Hellenistic complaint against the Hebrew widows, it had to be addressed. And because it was the right thing to do to address it, because widows are important to God and they were important to the apostles. But uh, not only that, their leadership required them to do it. So to solve this thorny problem, and you know what they did, they were given great wisdom. They turned the identification of new leaders to oversee this area to the multitude of the disciples. They only gave them three criteria. They have to be men of good reputation. They have to be men that are filled with the Holy Spirit and men that have wisdom. 
which as Pastor John pointed out last week, the job wasn't like being a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant. It was much deeper than that. We're dealing with people. We're dealing with very important and potentially really uh, challenging situations when you're dealing with people's needs in that way. So they turned over the identification of the new leaders to the multitude of the disciples, giving them the criteria. Um, you know, it's sometimes challenging to work with people. It just is. I know how challenging it is because I am one. <laughs> I know how challenging it is for me to work with me and, and with others. You may have heard this little ditty. To dwell above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. To dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> Sometimes that's true. So, the criterion involved, the three criteria. First of all, men of good reputation. Filled with the Holy Spirit. The apostles knew how important character was to this role. They knew how important being filled with the Holy Spirit was. They experienced that themselves. They had become, all of them, spiritually bankrupt through the events of the cross. Every one of them fled the scene of the crucifixion, and Peter denied the Lord three times. So they had all failed. Confident in themselves, confident in their own ability to get it done, confident in their uh, fidelity to the Lord and to being faithful to him no matter what would happen, their confidence was their Achilles heel, and they all fell. Every one of them. So when he said to them, after his resurrection from the dead, wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high, they were all ears, because they knew what failure felt like. And they knew that their own courage, their own strength, their own fidelity to Jesus wasn't going to get it done when the real difficult, challenging times came. So when he said, wait in Jerusalem, they did. They waited in Jerusalem. They obeyed. So he ascends into heaven, and ten days later, the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, gives them power to be his witnesses, and game on. The book of Acts then could be lived and ultimately written about. And that's what we've got. We've got the story of the Holy Spirit working in and through the apostles through the early church to reach the world. A longer title would be the acts of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in and through the apostles through the early church to reach the whole world. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And the record is from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. So it tells us what happened, the scope of it, and it tells us the the duration of it uh, until that takes place. And we're still doing that today. So, you know, we have the same mandate today. We need to be believers of good character, of good reputation. We need to be those that are filled with the Holy Spirit. This needs to be important and crucial for us every day. Paul the Apostle wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you're probably aware of this, but literally, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's no room for gaps. (laughs) There's no room for a break from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. For me, 
it's an emergency situation. When I roll out of bed in the morning, okay, emergency, emergency, be filled with the Holy Spirit today because otherwise your default mode is going to get you and others in trouble. They also knew that wisdom was needed. It was the principal thing. A little story. I was helping to transition a church uh, a few years back. And it was a very quick thing where I was asked to come in. The pastor was abruptly retiring. And he needed somebody to, to take over the leadership of the church and lead them into the selection of their next pastor. Well, that was all wonderful, and I was willing to do it. I knew the pastor that was retiring, and I knew why he was retiring, all for the right reasons. Uh, but they were a little thin on the leadership side of their church leadership team. In fact, most of their board members and elders were not in the church. They were off-site. They were in other churches living in other communities. And that wasn't really healthy for what I was facing. I needed eyes that were there and seeing everything that could help me provide another set of eyes on the whole process. And I needed people with boots on the ground. So we we needed to get some new leaders. And I, I didn't have time to open up a school of ministry and take a year to train new leaders and get them raised up and then name them and that type of thing. So I thought, what am I going to do? And then I remembered this kind of thing. I remembered Acts 6. I remembered 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications of leaders, elders, bishops in the church. And I realized again that they were character-based qualifications. In fact, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, I think there are 16 qualifications for the overseers of the church that are listed. And only one of them is directly gift-related, spiritual gift-related. Maybe two if you include hospitality as a gift, which probably there's reason for that. But two of the 16 or 17 uh, traits mentioned, only two of them had anything to do with spiritual gifts. All the rest of them had to do with character being of good reputation and not, you know, being a husband of one wife and not being somebody given to wine and all these kinds of things. Not being angry, not being a brawler. Important that guys aren't ready to get in a fist fight every time somebody agrees with them. You know, these kinds of things. So uh, I, I thought, well, I, I'm going to find out who the godly men are in the church. So I started asking people, who are the men that you would go to if you had need for spiritual input to help you through uh, something that is going on in your life? Who are the men that you would go to? And then who are the men that you know have good marriages? If you went into their home, you'd see an orderly, uh, sound way that they were leading their families. Who are these men? Who are men that bring their Bibles to church, actually read them and study them, and they're men of the Word and men of prayer. And so I started asking this question to as many of the people in the church as I could, and the same list of five or six guys came up in every discussion I had. So I invited these men uh, one at a time for a conversation, and I invited them to be part of the, the board of directors uh, of the church to help us through the transition. And they were epic. They were so helpful. They were good men. And many of them discovered ministries that they didn't even know the Holy Spirit had put within them after they put forward to be part of this process. And I think 
that even to this present day, all but one are still in an overseeing position within that church. And the only one that isn't uh, died of COVID-related causes, so he's in heaven. So he's got a better deal anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, just an amazing thing. So that's how they made this decision. They made the decision based upon uh, good reputation, character, filled with the Spirit, and also uh, the, those that had great w- wisdom. And notice the result of all of this. It's pretty amazing. The Word of God spread. The word then is in the text. Then the Word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. What happened? What was the then all about? Well, it was when this necessary decision to release this responsibility for the needs of the Hellenistic widows to these men that had been selected, these seven men, uh, all of whom, by the way, had Greek names, so they were, uh, that was helpful in reaching the Hellenistic widows. The, uh, the thing that happened was that, is that the word spread, the disciples multiplied greatly, and many priests became obedient to the Lord. Remember, at this time that this took place in Acts chapter 6, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. It hadn't been destroyed. That wouldn't happen until 70 AD. The temple was still standing. The priests were still functioning under the Judea, uh, the system of Judaism. Offerings were taking place. Sacrifices were being made. Uh, the prayers were being offered. Incense was raising up uh, to heaven. Uh, the ark of the or the uh, temple was there. The holy place, the holy of holies, the, all of these things were there. And they were used to some semblance of order. But there was something different about this order that was in the first church that they didn't have in the temple worship. And what was different was the Holy Spirit was animating all of it, giving life to all of it. And there was agape coming, and nobody was offering anything to God because they had to, or they're being compelled to do it, or uh, some sort of a legalistic requirement. The law had been written in their hearts. They had the law of God written in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. They had a huge case of the, I want to serve Jesus, uh, that was inside of each of them. And the priests look at that and they said, there's only one way that this could happen. This kind of organization, this kind of the way human needs are being met, this kind of growth of of the love and the joy that we're seeing everywhere around us, there's only one thing that can explain this. God, God himself is at work, and this Jesus that they've been talking about is the author of it by the Holy Spirit. So they became obedient to the faith. I grew up in a, in a uh, liturgical church, setting. Uh, I was very devoted to that system growing up. But when I was in high school back in, I was a junior in high school back in 1969. And all of a sudden, some of my friends were starting to come to, to school with Bibles in their, in their hands and having Bible studies at lunchtime. This is in Southern California. And it just blew my mind. And we called them Jesus freaks. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? That all these guys that 
you know, last week we were at parties and doing drugs and smoking dope and drinking and all this stuff that we were doing back then. Uh, how is it that they're having Bible studies now and, and everything has changed? So I started asking them, what's going on? You know, and in my mind I'm thinking, I'm the religious guy around here. What are you guys doing? And uh, so they all said the same thing. There's, there's this old church out in Costa Mesa called Calvary Chapel. And, and something's happening there. So I had to go check it out. I didn't go check it out for the purpose of receiving anything from myself. I checked it out because I was curious what had happened to my friends. But when I walked in the door, and when I heard love song, and when I heard Lonnie Frisbee's preaching, and when I heard Pastor Chuck's preaching, and I had a Bible in front of me that was in the pew, right? Or the, yeah, the pews right in front of me. There was a Bible there. And I opened it up and I could open to where Pastor Chuck and Lonnie were talking from. And what they were saying is what this said. And when I saw that, an invitation was given. For the first time I think I'd ever heard that actually Jesus died on purpose for my sins. And I could know I had eternal life if I would receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he died for my sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. I heard that message that night. Pastor Chuck gave the invitation. I shot my hand up and almost ran forward. I wasn't expecting it. And I can see that the, these priests may have had a similar reaction when they saw what was going on in the congregation by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was working in human lives, and it was attractive. It was attractive. Hey, you know, who in our world doesn't need what we have? Especially if there's love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance and peace in an acrimonious world that is all people seem to be fighting against each other. Aren't you sick of it? I am. I want to be about forgiveness and love and the gospel message and Jesus and be known for what I'm for instead of all the stuff that I'm against. And I'm against a lot of stuff. But that's not the message of the gospel. The Christian life isn't about being against a bunch of stuff. The Christian life is about being for the one that can do something about it, and that's for Jesus himself. So, very, very powerful uh, section of scripture. And I know I'm reviewing what Pastor John taught last week, but when I got into the text this, this week, I just, I just had to talk about it, so I apologize. All right, come to verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. That's how he was described, by the way, back in verse 5, isn't it? as a man who was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So some rose up from the synagogue of the freedmen, who were they? Well, uh, they were men who had been freed from slavery. Uh, some say they became proselytes into Judaism, that they weren't initially Jews, but were rather Gentiles. 
and they had their own synagogue in Jerusalem. Others don't believe they were actually proselytes, but Jews had been freed by the Romans. The Greek word is libertines, libertines. And so that's how the King James Bible translates it, uh, libertines. The synagogue of the libertines. They've been freed. They'd been freed from slavery of some type, no matter whether they were proselytes or not, isn't really the important issue here. That's just who they were, and they banded together in their own synagogue accordingly. And they rose up, and they disputed with the things that Stephen was talking about. And it tells us in the text that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They weren't able to resist it. They weren't able to counter it. They weren't able to come up with a logical, spiritual argument against anything that Stephen was saying. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't reasonably refute what Stephen had to say using truth, because truth wasn't on their side. Truth is always on the side of the gospel, the gospel's truth. And they couldn't use proper logic either. And so... What did they do? They couldn't resort to dealing with what Stephen was saying using truth or logic. So what did they do? Well, verse 11 through 14 tells us what they did. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Let's stop there for a second. Doesn't this all sound a bit familiar in the trial, the mock trials of Jesus? They used the same tactics. There was nothing they could say against Jesus' actual message. There was no no way to attack the truthfulness of what he said, either by logic or scripture. So what do they do? They resort to lies, false witnesses, and deception to change the narrative and find a way to make what they wanted happen, which is eventually to put him to death. Well, they're doing the same thing here with Stephen. Exactly the same thing. What did they do? They resorted to lies. Verse 14, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Notice the whole thing starts with that phrase, then they secretly induced men to say. The very law that they trusted in, the very Ten Commandments, that they held out as being of great importance because they revered Moses. That very set of tablets said, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. They threw that away in their blind rage to silence this message. So they secretly induced men to say. So because they couldn't debate him, they'd lie about Stephen and the words he was saying. It's interesting, tragic, but it's never going to stop. This is happening all the time in today's world. Deception is everywhere. Changing the narrative is everywhere. And it's particularly true as it relates to the Christian message. And if it's, if, I'm sure you've been paying attention, it's increasing this kind of 
uh, misrepresentation of what Christians actually are, what we actually believe. I'm talking about true believers and who Jesus actually is and what Jesus actually claimed about himself. It's intentionally being twisted and it's going to continue to increase. Look at what they said. Here are their lies. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Never did he do any of that. This man doesn't cease to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and the law. He never spoke against the temple. He never spoke against the law of Moses. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Didn't say that either. Now he could have quoted Jesus at some point, you know, in what Jesus himself said, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Or he could have been referring to what Jesus prophesied concerning the end of the age, that this temple is ultimately going to be destroyed. But Stephen himself wasn't an advocate of some sort of an insurrection plan that was going to destroy the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Not at all. They twisted it. Now it's interesting, in the next chapter, which we're not going to get into this morning, these unbelieving Jews, all unbelieving Jews, seem to be caught up with the temple, a place, and caught up with their version of a process, which was the law. They worshipped the place, and they worshipped their interpretation of the law. And that's what Stephen is going to end up in his address in chapter 7, talking about. He's going to refute their dependence upon the temple. He's going to refute their dependence upon their interpretation of the law. And then he's going to indict them in the next chapter for their rejection of all of God's messengers, messengers throughout history, and especially Jesus himself. So what what Stephen is going to say, and you know the story ahead of time, is going to end up being the fuel that fires their passion to great, great heights to where they want to stone him to death and put him to death and put his message to death along with him. So I wonder, and it seems likely to me that this would be the case, I wonder if Stephen really knew that what he was going to say might very well cost him his life. But he said it anyway. I just wonder. Of course, the text doesn't doesn't help us here, doesn't give us a definitive insight into what Stephen was thinking. But he went ahead with this message that he was going to preach, and he preached it with all his heart. I don't think his motive in preaching it was at all to rub their nose in anything or, you know, sort of a an I gotcha type thing or to slam them or condemn them unjustly. He wanted to reach them. But the only way that could happen is if they would repent of their hypocrisy and their dependence on things that couldn't save them, i.e. the temple and their interpretation of the law of Moses. That's what they were depending upon. The very last verse of the chapter says, And all who sat in the council, this is the Jewish Sanhedrin now, this is the most powerful body uh, among the Jewish people. They looked steadfastly at Stephen, and they saw his face as the face of an angel. 
all this opposition, all these lies. Just imagine being Stephen. Imagine hearing these things. I remember uh, a friend of mine who was a pastor in a denominational church where I was pastoring for years. They went into the membership roles of that church. And in their corporate documents, they could go to inactive members and bring them to the church building to create a vote to oust and get rid of any pastor they wanted to. So this pastor was preaching the gospel, a devoted believer in the scriptures, taught them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The church was busting at the seams, but the unbelieving, hypocritical people that were in that group, they went out and they found... And so this pastor had to sit in the front row of this corporate meeting where all of these naysayers and all of these angry people were. And one at a time, they got up in in front and they told their story, their lies about what pastor so-and-so had done. And he had no recourse. He had no opportunity to speak. Their order of service didn't allow it. Their constitution didn't allow him to defend himself at all. And he had to sit there with his family as they're saying these brutal things about him. And eventually he had no choice. They ousted him and he was gone. He ended up showing up at our church. It was wonderful to have him because he's a good brother. Really good brother. He's, he went on to another city and started pastoring again. But imagine being that in that situation. Imagine being Stephen. What would that feel like? When everything coming out of your opponent's mouths is a lie. Yet the, the, the situation within Stephen was not to defend himself. Remember what, what Jesus did when he was accused. Isaiah 53 tells us that as a lamb before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. There's prudence in that. But I think there's another reason why this could be true of Stephen. There was a peace that came over his soul that was supernatural. There was a peace of God that he experienced because of the presence of God that was upon him. The accusers could say what they were going to say, but it wasn't going to touch Stephen because he knew who was for him. Romans 8.31 What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we're going to need to hang on to that passage of Scripture, brothers and sisters. If things continue to heat up in the direction that they've been going in our culture, the church is going to be increasingly marginalized by the culture, eventually accused more by the culture, blamed for things the church doesn't do. What are we going to do? We're going to get on a rampage? Or are we going to just be biblical Jesus-following Christians? And stick with him. That's what Stephen did. Pretty good example. I want you to just 
turn with me to Luke chapter 12 just for a moment, and we'll close with this passage of Scripture. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus had been speaking to his disciples, warning them about the dangers of the leaven of the Pharisees. And you probably remember what the leaven or the yeast, the corrupting influence of the Pharisees actually was. Jesus identified it. He said, it's hypocrisy. They're saying one thing and living another. They're hiding behind a a spiritual facade, a mask, hypocrisy. So he warns them about that. And then he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. In other words, don't fear human beings, because all they can do is eliminate your physical life. After that, they're powerless. The only one who has anything to do with what happens after you die is God himself. So he's the one to fear. He's the one to revere. Now, lest we be... uh, confused about what Jesus is saying there and what the meaning of the fear of the Lord is, he goes on. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So on the one hand, he says, fear him who has power after he has killed to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him. But on the other hand, he says, remember, your lives are of infinite, eternal value to this God that made you. And just like sparrows, uh, you know, uh, five sparrows can be purchased for one-sixteenth of a day's wage. Yet, if any of them falls to the ground... God remembers each of them. Even the hairs on your head are remembered by God. You are much more valuable than many sparrows. So he loves us. This God that we fear is also the God who loves us. Never separate those two. It's very important to keep them together in our minds in terms of our relationship with the Lord. We fear the Lord, but we, we understand how much he deeply loves us. Don't throw one away to the to the emphasis on the other. Uh, and that's an important thing in spiritual, uh, the spiritual life. And then he goes on to say, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. And then he says to them, final passage that we'll read this morning. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So on our part, fear the Lord and recognize that he loves us beyond any comprehension for us to fully grasp how much he loves us. But then, be filled with the Spirit and let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then when those situations come where we have to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is within us, and that answer could be self-incriminating even, 
because we maintain our faith in Christ, well, the Holy Spirit will teach us in that very moment what we ought to say. And if it costs us our physical life on earth, it costs us our physical life on earth. If he allows us to remain alive through the process, then we remain alive through the process. This life here, very, very short. The life beyond, everlasting. Everlasting. Oh, we've got every reason to walk with Jesus, don't we? We've got every reason in the world. What a Savior. Shall we pray together? We thank you so much, our Lord for all that you are to us. You have oh, you've invaded our lives by grace. You've changed us by your Spirit and you've called us for this very hour. Lord, our mission is the same as the apostles to evangelize and make disciples. That's what the church is all about. Our calling, different and uh, according to the gifts that you've given to each of us, but we all have those. And then, Lord, our priorities. What are we living for? What do we say no to so that we can say yes to the right things? Give us wisdom in these areas, Lord. Speak to us. Help us to do the hard work of evaluating ourselves, of examining what you have brought us into this world to be and to do. And just bless uh, our hearts as we move forward with these thoughts. Thank you, Lord, that there is no reason to be afraid of anything that happens on this planet to us. Because you've got it. Yours. you got it covered. We put our trust in you. We put our trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.